coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are. You're listening to the VIP Jazzwell Report. Today, we have a true patriot on the show. He spent 23 years in the Army Special Forces, involved in foreign internal defense, counterinsurgency, and stability missions. He served in the special operations for over 18 years and has been a Green Beret for over 15 years in combat deployments in Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Panama, Iraq, and Afghanistan. He makes Rambo look like the latest puppet on Sesame Street. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show the former Green Beret and the founder of the Stability Institute, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann. Welcome to the show, Scott. Hey, thanks for having me. Do you like the intro? <laughs> yeah, you caught me off guard a little bit on the, uh, the Sesame Street analogy, but uh, I appreciate it. <laughs> well, you ain't seen nothing yet, and, and you know, you're a Green Beret. You shouldn't be caught off guard. <laughs> exactly. That's on me. It won't happen again, though. Well, there's a lot of testosterone on the show today. Even your last name, man, so macho. It is, but you know, the funny thing is my mom's name is Anita, so I had to be a tough kid growing up from the very beginning. <laughs> now, sir, you're an ex-Green Beret. That's I've heard of U.S. Navy SEALs and other Special Armed Forces units. What do Green Berets do, and, and how does one become one? Well, we've been around uh, a long time. We uh, were really, our ancestors uh, were the Office of Strategic Services. These were the guys that jumped in behind enemy lines in World War II uh, mm -hmm. and helped the French partisans and other partisans stand up against the Nazis. Those were really our founders. Uh, and ever since then, we've been doing a very similar missions, working behind enemy lines and in other rough places where uh, governments can't go often uh, to help locals uh, stand up for themselves, either against oppressive governments or to help governments put down insurgencies. We're uh, trainers and teachers. We work by, with, and through indigenous populations speaking their language and, and living in their culture. Think of Lawrence of Arabia uh, kind of in modern times, and that's what uh, the charter of the Green Beret is. Um, to get in the, the ranks of the Green Berets, uh, you, you, it's a pretty arduous process, like any special operations uh, outfit, whether it's SEALs or Marines or, uh, or SF, Special Forces. You have to go through a uh, – first you have to volunteer to jump out of a perfectly good airplane, uh, and that's called Airborne School. And then from there, you have to go through three weeks of selection and assessment where they kind of think of it as tryouts, uh, where they assess your ability to work independently and in small teams. And then you go through about a year of training after that where you, you learn everything from demolitions uh, to weapons training to medical to communications. Each of our guys on our 12-man team has a different skill. Uh, so, but everyone goes for about a year, and then you get language training after that and cultural training. And finally, after about a year and a half, uh, you earn that coveted Green Beret, and you join what they call an A-team. Uh, and work in that 12-man team for, for a very long time in some pretty challenging places. Wow. Well, the reason I got you on the show today was to discuss some of the recent events that have been happening. And quite frankly, you know, I'm not really satisfied with the political perspective that's being presented from Washington and around the world. Um, I wanted someone who's had experience firsthand on the field to share their thoughts. And really, there's no one better than you to enlighten us. So I want to start with the Malaysian airline tragedy. Right. What are your thoughts with this recent crash? Well, you know, I I think the larger concern I have, Zip, uh, you know, the first of all, I mean, it's just a it, it's a horrible tragedy, obviously, and, and and my thoughts and prayers go out to you know the families of the of and and the victims themselves uh, for these folks to be to 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 go down this way. But but at, at a larger level, mm. you know, my concern is is just the audacious. 
uh, expansionist uh, attitude and behavior of, of Putin and Russia. I mean, that at its face to me uh, is just it, – it's, it's, it's unprecedented. And frankly, I, I don't see anyone, including the United States, really stepping up to do anything about it. Uh, the fact that this airliner was shot down is a tragedy, uh, but, but, it, but it reflects a larger problem, which is Russia's behavior right now that, is, frankly, is just going unchecked. I want to talk about that a little later, but was this a terror attack? In the sense, it, it was in the sense that it was it was an unregulated attack against civilians, and frankly, it was a flag you know a flagged vessel in international airspace. It's you know that's an act of war. Mm-hmm. Um, but but uh, you know one thing I want to be clear on for your listeners is is that you know my perspective on this is that it was not uh, a malicious attack to bring down a Malaysian. Airliner. Instead, uh, everything that I've seen and, and everything in my experience tells me that this was a, a probably a group of separatists who did have a very high-end piece of air defense equipment that had a missile or missiles and, and a radar system on it. I, I think they have been trained by Soviet advisors and. Uh, there's evidence that they had already shot down a, a, a Ukrainian supply plane, and my suspicions are, and I think a lot of other experts as well think that's what they were. They thought they were shooting down here, so it was intentional. It, it was just an unmitigated disaster that never should have happened. Uh, but I would not classify it, you know, as a terror act where where uh, rogue elements were trying to bring down a civilian liner. I think they they probably thought this was a military target. But how do they get access to such equipment? Well, there's, you know, there's battlefield recovery, which is where you can recover a piece of equipment, uh, you know, on the battlefield that was already there. It could have been, it could have been a, a legacy piece of equipment from the Soviet Union. I think more likely what you, you know, even the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, VIP, just hours before uh, the, the incident, uh, overtly admitted that the, the Russians are indeed shipping arms to include tanks and air defense systems to the Ukrainians. So I, I believe they were supplying with this piece of equipment, and I think they were trained on it. Uh, the problem is the, the engagement procedures. Obviously, I think these guys got in front of their handlers, but uh, I think they were probably given this piece of equipment. Now, in such a short time, this has been the second Malaysian airline incident. Mm-hmm. Do you see any connection between the two? I don't. Uh, I, I really don't. I, you know, I've Considered that, I guess everyone has. Mm. I really don't see a connection. Um, I think at, at, at its, you know, at its face, I believe this was truly an airplane that was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, and at 33,000 feet, you know, I think these guys were trained just enough to acquire a target, track it, and bring it down. Uh, I certainly don't think they were savvy enough to identify this as a, you know, as a Malaysian airliner. Uh, and, and was something that they were trying to bring down because of the flag that it carried. I just, I, I don't, I don't see that. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't pass the common sense test to me. Now you're an expert. How does an airline, or an aeroplane, go missing? Yeah. So you know, uh, that, that you're talking about the first one now. You're talking about the, the, the first, first one. Yes, airline. I happened yeah. a few months ago. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, you know, there's there's a range of theories out there. Um, I, you know, I still, I guess, I still subscribe. Uh, to the notion that um, that it, it did go down in, in the ocean and in a vast 
space where even a debris field could go unnoticed for quite some time. I think it probably, you know, the bulk of the fuselage probably submerged. I don't dismiss foul play amongst those in the cockpit, or at least one in the cockpit. I think that is definitely a distinct possibility. Um, but, you know, there's been others who have, who have uh, you know, put forward, you know, uh, theories that, you know, maybe other external nation states were involved and it was moved there. Uh, again, you know, I haven't seen anything that leads me in that conclusion. I, I, I still, uh, I guess I hold to the, to the theory that it, it went down. Uh, in the ocean and, and uh, unfortunately uh, in such a vast space that we were not able to, to identify debris or anything like that. Well, here's my question. A plane flying down, okay, let's say it went into the ocean, but on impact when it touches the water, something as fragile as the plane's wings, wouldn't they come off and then float away and then through cameras on satellite, whatever? I mean, I can see my ha the color of the paint of my house mm -hmm. on Google. And, and I'm sure the army and the governments have such technical equipment. Yeah, they do. I mean, there's, there's, there's certainly some high-tech equipment out there. Mm. Um, and, you know, all, uh, all I know is that it certainly appears that the, 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 the technical proficiency of the folks involved in the search far supersede uh, what my ability is to speculate on it, and they came up empty. You know, they came up with nothing. And a lot of times I also think that the technical capability or capacity of a lot of those systems that we do have that are space-based, and sometimes they're not, as, they're not as great as we think they are, and they certainly have their limitations and gaps, uh, especially when it comes to, to real-time performance. So, um, you, you know, I, I still believe that, uh, that the aircraft went down in the ocean, and uh, unfortunately it seems like we'll never know, um, at least not anytime soon. And you said something about foul play happening in the cockpit that's inside the plane. But do you ever get a feeling that there could be foul play around this whole issue on the outside? Governments hiding it because whatever happened could have provoked possibly a war. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, after 9-11, I don't, I don't quickly dismiss, you know, the, 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 the role of external powers mm. ever. I mean, I always, you know, acknowledge that there's... You know, there's always the off chance that there's there's something at play there that that we don't know or understand or that's much deeper. And I think you always, you know, it's always prudent, especially in this day and age, to to reserve that that notion. Um, and, and so, yeah, I guess that you know that 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 is a a remote possibility. Um, you know, I, I still I always try to look at it from a you know what is a what does a nation state have to gain in a situation like that? What is you know does you know is the juice worth the squeeze so to speak? And it's hard for me to see that it would be. Um, you know, it's kind of similar to you know the whole downing of the Malaysian plane. You know, what do the Russians have to gain by downing a Malaysian airliner? That's, I don't think they do. I think what what you know, and again this. It's just another example of, you know, probably separatists getting in front of their handlers. Uh, so, you know, again, I think it could happen, uh, something like that, but I, I, I don't really think it did. I, I, still, I still believe it, it, it went in the ocean. Coming back to the most recent plane crash on Malaysian Airlines, mm -hmm. um, you know, our political scenario went haywire. They all wanted Obama to say something. Um, there was very little word from the Malaysian politicians. It's their airline. That's what I found strange. They were relatively quiet. Yeah, I think everybody's been relatively quiet on this. I mean, it's it's really it's it's baffling to me how this level of audacity. Look, I mean, even if 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 the separatists shot this this airliner down purely by accident, thinking it was. 
uh, it was a military target. That, that does not excuse the fact that they brought down a, a vessel in international airspace and that a whole range uh, of offensive has have been committed here. And, and I don't see anyone, including the Malaysians, including the European community, stepping up here and, and, and calling this what it is. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I really am disappointed in that because uh, when you're dealing with a guy, you know, like, like Putin, this this is exactly what he looks for, and, and he he if he has a sense that no one's going to push back on him, uh, he'll just continue to assert himself here, and and no one seems to be stepping up and 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 calling him out on this, and and if that's the case, then then this will you know this kind of behavior will likely continue. I mean, he's he's acting like a mafia boss, and even the thing like the the black boxes, right. that took such a long time to hand over. Yeah, and I mean, you're talking about this this entire eastern area of Ukraine. I mean, generally speaking, is an undergoverned area or an ungoverned area where the rule of the state, the rule of the law, you know, the the Ukrainian state is incapable of projecting security and governance in that area. So you have you have essentially, you know, a form of clan rule here, thuggish rule, uh, that is handled by the Russians. And 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 so if they want to delay. The you know and and take a look at those black boxes and make sure that there's nothing damning on there that they being the Russian state if they want to uh, intentionally delay investigators for 48 72 hours or longer they can um, and if, especially if no one is uh, bringing pressure to bear internationally on on them doing that and I don't hear anyone doing that I hear some you know some 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 slight hints at sanctions and things like that but for the most part. Uh, these guys are doing whatever they want out there, and uh, I, I suspect we'll continue to do so until someone challenges them. Where do we stand? What does it mean to the American people, this whole incident? Well, I think, you know, the incident by itself, you you could make the argument that is, while a tragedy, it is uh, it is regionally isolated in, in, the, in the eastern Ukraine area. It certainly... Uh, you know, uh, is 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 it causes you to double think about when you fly in certain areas and where you fly over. But you know, if you step back from it and think that how many how many Europeans were on that aircraft, how many Dutch were on that aircraft, and when you think about Russia's uh, expansionist behavior in the Middle East in Syria, if you think about the fact that you know Putin was recently in the Western Hemisphere visiting with Brazil, um, you know, and you, and you kind of step back and you look at this, I think it's it's another indicator of America's receding role at leadership in the world, uh, more of a head-in-the-sand kind of mentality, and, I, and, I, and it worries me. And it worries me because any time I think America has – we have a role in this world to, uh, to lead. And any time we step back from that, uh, folks like Putin come into the picture. I mean, you know, this, this doesn't look a lot different than the late 1930s. I wasn't alive during that time, but I am a student of history. And um, any time, you know, uh, the leaders of the world step back and let this kind of stuff happen, this is, this is what you get. And so from my money, that's what I'm worried about. I, I look at uh, uh, opportunists like Putin and, and the leader of ISIS and others who are, who are salivating over the opportunity to, to make power grabs while we stick our head in the sand. You're right in that it does look a bit like deja vu. Um, But upon reflection, should the U.S. lead the world stage in international affairs? Because are we actually good at it? 
Well, I mean, I think that's a fair question. I think we certainly need to take a look at, at how we have led over the last couple of decades. And I, and I think there is there's room. I think to, we've misled. Well, that and we can jump into that anytime you'd like because I do think there are some some major changes we need to make there. But I don't think that I don't think that takes away from the fact that we need to lead. I don't think it takes away from the fact that people look to us to lead and that we do have a, a critical role to play. Uh, you know, as a as as a leader of the free world and 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 a representative uh, of what freedom can look like. And and I do think that uh, when we operate in these areas. Um, that we we have the potential to do a lot of good and and to push back on tyrants and opportunists and and extremists and I, and I think that's our you know that, that that's our place in many ways and I don't think that will go away I think it's just it's just where we are and, and I don't think we should run from that we should take a look however at how we do it uh, and I think that the world is changing very rapidly VIP I mean the tectonic plates of the earth are kind of shifting under our feet. Um, and and the the industrial age approach that we've used in mm-hmm. some of these places, I think we need to relook that because there are elements at play there that that this is no longer a relevant approach. We do have ways to lead in this world and to beat back extremism and opportunists, but we've got to we've got to be honest with ourselves about that and look at what's working and what's not. And it's not always going to be, you know, a, a, a drone strike or a Hellfire missile that's the solution. Well, let's take this so-called U.S. foreign policy into Iraq, Afghanistan, and other places. You know, we seem to have uh, a foreign policy which really should be called a military policy because all we do is we go in, bomb a place, send in reinforcements and drones, and then pull out. In my mind, you know, what we lack in our foreign policy, and I think you might agree, is um, the ability to infiltrate the core problem and create stability. Instead, we're actually disrupting their day-to-day lifestyle, disrupt their food supply, their power supply, their rule of law? What do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, you know, the first thing I will, I will say is that there are always going to be irreconcilables in this world who represent a clear, and thre- a clear and present danger to the U.S. and its allies, and they must be dealt with often lethally. And mm-hmm. that, is, that is just the world we live in. And so um, there, that's always going to be a reality. The, 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 the problem is, I think, is that we have we have kind of defaulted to two or three playbooks uh, that we bring out every time uh, we have a threat, and 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 I think this is kind of where you're going there, and I and I agree with that. I think that this top-down uh, security-centric approach into um, these these nations that are at best at best undergoverned. In other words, the, the government only has a, a, a small amount of control in these areas. To just go in there and project military power down and in is uh, is not always a good thing. In fact, over the last decade or so, I would say it has had a, a negative effect. Uh, we call it counterinsurgency or coin. Uh, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'm not a fan. I'm, I, and I've been a part of it for most of my adult life. And uh, I think there's a there's a there's a more holistic, uh, realistic way to go about this. Uh, we, in special forces, we often call it foreign internal defense. But what it really means is, is, uh, is a whole of nation approach, looking at the area that you, that's uh, at risk, and, and working to help that nation stabilize itself from the bottom up. Because the reality, Vip, is if you look at most of the places in the world, and let's talk about 
Islamist extremism specifically for a minute. I want to just address that explicitly because I do believe that's still the greatest threat we face, groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at where these violent Islamist extremist groups go, where do they try to set up shop? They go to the areas that are clannish or tribal. Uh, they look for areas like Somalia. Ideal recruitment centers. Absolutely. Afghanistan, uh, Yemen, uh, Horn of Africa, uh, North Africa. All of these areas are beyond the reach of the government in those countries. In other words, they, they are wild and woolly places where clan and tribal society control every aspect of daily life. Now, what the, the thing is, those areas where tribal and clan society dominate, they are very easy to mobilize towards violence using honor and shame. These are honor and shame societies that you can quickly muster the population toward violence. That's how they operate. Uh, but the, these societies are also badly broken. If you think, think about Somalia for a minute. Think about – it's almost an, an anarchy there. Think about Afghanistan. Think about Yemen. I mean these are places that are the, – the tribal societies are in bad shape. So these, these extremists can go into these areas, and they basically live among the people. They marry into the populations, and over time, they supplant these informal civil society systems of dispute resolution, agriculture, security. They replace that with their own form of Sharia law, with their own form of governance, with their own form of security, and they become relevant to the local population. And once they do that, they can then project violence, inspire violence well beyond those tribal boundaries. And look at the people that are blowing themselves up. Look at the people that are crashing airliners. They are tribal. They are clannish. So they're taking advantage of what was once a pretty strong system of stability, clan and tribal society, and they are co-opting it. If it's so obvious to you, why isn't it so obvious to the politicians? Look, I don't know. I mean, it baffles me. I, you know, I can. I, but I first think the first thing I've got to do is I've got to throw a little light on myself here. I mean, for, until 2009 in Afghanistan, VIP, even though Green Berets, we were brought up to think this way. We all got caught up in, uh, frankly, the security-centric kind of man-hunting mentality uh, of of Afghanistan. We were focused on walking down the Taliban, killing Al Qaeda, and we got away from this by with and through the local population. And it wasn't until 2009 that we that Green Berets actually said, you know what, we need to get back to our roots, and we moved out into these villages of rural Afghanistan, and that's when we really started to see, Vip, the, the amount of damage to these tribal societies that had occurred over 30 years, and just how creatively al-Qaeda and Taliban and other extremists were coming into these local areas, resolving disputes, uh, helping with food insecurity problems, providing security. And guess what? When you do that, you become relevant. Uh, and, and meanwhile, what are we doing? Because you're seen as a provider. Absolutely. What are we doing? We're driving around in these big moonraker vehicles like something out of a James Bond movie, uh, dressed like RoboCop. You know, we look like Martians to these folks, and we walk around talking about population-centric warfare. And, and the reality was, is, 
When we do that, we could not be farther away in terms of relevance from these local folks. And so when we launch drone strikes, when we conduct night raids, when we kick indoors, we think that we're actually pulling bad guys off the battlefield, and we are. These are pyrrhic victories. These are tactical victories but strategic defeats because when you do those things, Mm -hmm. you actually mobilize – honor-bound tribal society to seek revenge. Um, You're coming from the top down, and you play into that narrative that al-Qaeda spins every day that Islam is under attack from the West. Uh, We play right into it. So it's about working from the bottom up. I'm not saying that we don't have to do lethal strikes and take out targets. We do. But it should be in the context of a much smarter more locally appropriate approach that brings the local folks along with us in the way that's uh, fitting for them. We don't. We work within the system, not against it. Okay. Here's what I want to. You're a man of history. Hmm. Our policy seems to be invasion as opposed to implementation. If you look at the British style of colonization, they had it right. They invaded. They put down a system of law. They took a long-term view. They implemented education, a way of life. We don't do any of that. And because we don't do that, what you're saying is uh, the al-Qaeda and ISIS come in and give a form of structure to their way of life. That's right. What I'm saying is that all of these areas that are becoming strategic safe havens to violent extremists that will eventually project against us, they suffer mightily from sources of instability and root causes of instability that that span all aspects of civil society. So governance, dispute resolution, uh, education, impoverishment, food insecurity, you name it. And, and it. and it is because the civil society mechanisms that were once governed by clan and tribal elders have been degraded over decades, and we are not acknowledging that or appreciating that. If you, I could show you – literally, I could go to a whiteboard and show you how in Afghanistan, for example, we virtually ignored clan and tribal society for the entire war. We did not even acknowledge the role that it – let me give you another example. Uh, we ran these programs called Cash for Work. General Petraeus often referred to it as money as a weapon system, but we would do these massive projects. We would empower tactical commanders to go in and dig wells and build schools and clean waterways and, and all these things. But the reality is that the Afghan Pashtuns uh, had their own system of cleaning up their community where they would mobilize their young men under the elders, and the system was called Hashar. And it was a community mobilization to clean your own roads, to replant your fields, to repair the waterways. And because we were paying these exorbitant amounts of money for people to clean their own driveway, this informal system that had been around for centuries just fell away. And so now, bottom-up economic development in these villages has become completely de- dependent on a war economy. And that we didn't mean to do that. We meant well. But, but it gets back to your point about not appreciating history and not appreciating local reality. What did stability look like in Afghanistan? How did they provide for their own development? How did they resolve their own disputes? If we don't know the answers to those questions in the beginning, we should not even step into that area until we do. Now, our present foreign policy makes, unfortunately, Obama look weak and actually makes George Bush look good. Hmm. When you were in the Army, how did the Army favor him in comparison to Obama? Well, 
you know, the, the, uh, there's there's a, a variety of opinions on both of those guys. But, you know, I will tell you for the most part that um, in my community, the guys that I worked around um, under President Bush as the commander in chief, there was a, a general understanding that um, he was he was very supportive of the military. I mean, there, there was there was a lot of. Uh, you know, you just material support, moral support. You always, you always, you always felt like you kind of knew where you stood with him and what was expected. Uh, I don't, I didn't necessarily. I mean, President Obama signed my retirement, you know, paperwork and uh, or my, you know, my uh, certificate of retirement, and um, you know, he was my commander in chief. But I did not have that same personal sense with him. I, I, you know, I never, I didn't quite feel as much like he had our back. Um, I, I know other guys felt that way. But look, I will also tell you. Uh, that I'm, I railed just as hard on President Bush's policy in Afghanistan. I think that we were wishy-washy in the beginning. I think that we we should not have pushed off in Iraq in the direction that we did when we were just getting started in Afghanistan. It had huge repercussions. Uh, but from a commander-in-chief perspective, I do believe we do look weaker in the world today uh, under President Obama. I do think that this is people are taking notice of this, people who are our enemies all the way up to the Mexico border. And, uh, and I'll worry about it more than anything else. I I'll don't get why no one, I don't get why no one's listening to you because you're actually making a lot of sense. You know, you're, well, you're, you're talking about our strategy tends to be top down. Yeah. Yours is the reverse. Yeah. And, and the thing is, Vip, there are a lot of people out there right now, my brothers and sisters out there who, who get this and who are doing this, and I salute them. They're doing it from, from Peru to Africa to Afghanistan. They're out there doing this bottom-up approach. The problem is uh, is that no one at the top is listening to them. I mean, we, we understand there's many operators out there, uh, SEALs, Marines, Green Berets, who understand, and frankly, USAID and State Department, too, who know that we need to come from the bottom. But for whatever reason, uh, our policymakers and strategists continue to apply these tired, industrial-age, top-down applications into clan society. And when you do that, you actually drive the extremist into the population like a tick and a shaggy dog. You, you, you allow him, you enable him to bury even deeper. Your own actions make their narrative of Islam under attack become a reality. Is a top-down approach more beneficial to a politician's um, career? Because he can show short-term impact, and that's what he wants to show. Because if you're going to go bottom-up, it's a long-term view. You have to integrate into the community and, and, and get accepted. All that takes time. Absolutely, and understand that in clan society, which, again, you know, when I talk about clan societies for your listeners, I want to be clear. Mm. I'm talking about areas where the group takes precedent over the individual. So, you know, in the United States, we put, we put priority on ourselves, on the individual. The Constitution backs that up. It's a document unlike any other document in the world. Uh, we all evolved from clan society where groups had to stick together to survive. But uh, we've evolved past that now, and so we have rule of law and, and rights of the individual, and that becomes our focus. That becomes our Western bias, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, God willing, one day all, you know, we'll all have that, 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 that respect of the individual because that is, that is an amazing thing. But in most of these places where extremists are setting up shop, that is not the case. They set up shop in areas where group behavior is takes precedent over the individual, and honor and shame 
are the motivations that cause you to make decisions and do things. And so this is a very different society than what we're used to. And frankly, it can be a very ugly society. Uh, group decisions in favor of honor. I mean, you're talking about gangs and mafia. I mean, these are all clan societies. It's not just tribes. And so, so working with these areas, frankly, is a bit ugly. But when you think about it from if, if my definition of relative stability is an area that is inhospitable to violent extremists. In other words, they're irrelevant mm -hmm. to these local groups. Uh, they don't want them there, and therefore they can't set up shop there and project threats against our homeland. Now, does that mean that the Klan society that is inhospitable to them is, is pretty? No, by, by no stretch. It's not. In fact, some of their behavior is abhorrent, but it, it's what we have, and it's the lesser of two evils. And you're right. It takes time. You cannot work in these clan areas, these tribal areas, until you have relationships built. This could take years, if not decades, in many cases. Talking about clans and mafia, let's take it back to Russia. Hmm. Is there a silent movement of the Russian mafia across the world? Because there seem to be huge pockets of these communities in places like Dubai, mm -hmm. in places like London, um, and even New York, even Miami. Yeah, so, so the Russian mafia and really other transnational criminal groups mm. definitely bear watching. They, they warrant our attention in ways, in some ways, as much or more than violent extremism. Um, you know, these guys are proficient at moving commodities transnationally, no matter what that commodity is. And uh, there, there is a debate, I think, VIP in the intelligence community about the, the, the nexus or the, the, the joining of terror and transnational crime. There's still a lot of folks in the international community who believe that that has not yet really occurred and that there's a separation there and that that, 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 that may not occur. You know, I, again, I go back to 9-11. I don't dismiss things like that out of hand. I think that's irresponsible. I think it's a matter of time mm -hmm. before transnational criminal groups uh, find themselves willing to move really nasty commodities against us that might be sponsored by violent extremists. And whether those are dirty bombs or, or foreign fighters or whatever, you know, car bombs, you know, into the United States, whatever that may be, uh, I, I think that, that groups like uh, M13 and, and, and others are, are eventually going to do that. So the, the, the Russian mafia and these other transnational criminal groups, we really need to pay attention to them. And I think if you look at how they operate as well, they operate using that bottom-up model. They, they, they dominate areas that are beyond the reach of the state. They, they work through clan society. They use honor and shame, revenge, violence, those kinds of things to, to operate as, as part of their reach. Uh, they use the same model except that they do it mostly in urban areas, but it's the same approach. And so, again, if you try to go in there and thump heads from the top down, uh, you actually allow these guys to dig deeper in. So, you know, even dealing with the Russian mafia, transnational criminal groups, we're going to have to start looking at bottom-up approaches. Now let's talk about you. You retired from the Green Beret, mm -hmm. and then you set up the Stability Institute. Now, I did. Now, yeah. I would have thought you would have done a mercenary group. Like the Expendables. <laughs> well, no, absolutely not. You know, for for me, um, look, I, 
I wanted to be a Green Beret from the time I was 14 years old, and that never changed for me. When I was able to to, to look out at my little boys, uh, at my retirement, and my wife, and 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 you know, give my speech. One thing I told them was, literally, from the time I was 14 years old, this is what I wanted to do. And and although there were some hard times along the way, I wouldn't trade that for anything. I have loved being Special Forces every day of my life, and it was it was just a dream come true. And the guys that I served with, and the things they do, I mean, I truly had the opportunity to walk among giants. Um, and, and so, you know, while I did think about serving in some capacity beyond my time in the military, the way I felt I could be of most service, Vip, was as, you know, as I watched our guys move back into these rural villages and saw the things that they were rediscovering as they lived and worked among these Afghan farming communities, was that we were woefully unprepared to deal with the grievances, the societal challenges that were being exploited by these extremists, whether it was food insecurity low-tech agriculture, dispute resolution, tribal dynamics. Our guys were out there alone and unafraid, figuring this out one event at a time. And, 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 and what, I, what I did find was that when you can connect mm. a Green Beret or a Navy SEAL who's living out in these rural areas with an anthropologist or a sociologist or an agriculturalist who understands fundamentally the why of these social issues and you connect them and get out of the way, some amazing things can happen. And, and for the last couple of years in Afghanistan, we really started to do that with the Village Stability Program and with Afghan local police. We started with just under 100 defenders, local defenders. We grew it to almost 30,000. Uh, this was, you know... So is it working? Large. I'm sorry? Is it working? It is working. Unfortunately, our policy has pulled us out of the rural villages now, and we have no Green Berets out in these villages anymore. We've completely pulled out of the villages. Uh, and this is what disturbs me, is that for the long haul in Afghanistan, this is going to take you know, 20, 30 years to help them get back on their feet. We need Green Berets out in these rural areas. Uh, and, and for a lot of these rough places that we're looking at dealing with, instead of throwing drone strikes into these areas and mobilizing tribal revenge, put advisors out in these rural areas and let them work with with, with the host nation special forces, and over time, build it up. We've done this in Colombia, Philippines, El Salvador. It works. Um, and so when I retired, that's why I started the Stability Institute, was to try to connect our operators, our Green Berets, our SEALs, with these social society experts uh, who can help them understand these problem sets and deal with them head on. And that's what the Institute does. It's a nonprofit, and uh, we just connect people, and we find people who understand answers to these hard problems, and we bring them together with our Green Berets. Now, this is a non-for-profit. Yes. So who, yep. who, who funds this? Well, I fund it. Uh, I was fortunate enough to, uh, my, my brother and I, to get into real estate, uh, sounds kind of crazy, five or six years before I retired. Well, rumor has it that you have a $10 million portfolio. Well, I've, I've got, we've been very fortunate in, uh, in what we've acquired, and, and uh, we've, built, we've built a nice portfolio, and it's allowed me to pursue my passions. And my passions are, uh, well, this and, and helping our Green Berets come home to civil society. So, so I'm focused on putting a lot of the money from the real estate into the institute mm -hmm. to uh, build it up and, and make these connections. We do, uh, whenever we teach government organizations, we do get a little money from that. But for the most part, uh, I fund it myself. But and, do you uh, have political connections? No. 
no, I've, I really have not done that. I haven't pursued that. I've, I've built this, you know, much like the philosophy we stand for, which is bottom up. I don't want to be. I don't want this institute beholden to anyone. It's this. It's beholden to the to the heroes that are out there in these villages and urban areas working bottom up. We owe them so much. Um, I have so many friends that aren't here today. But you're accepted by the armed forces as a yeah, legitimate absolutely. organization. Yeah. We are. I mean, we we've become, I think, uh, a pretty common uh, group with with. Uh, but you know, it's neat that because it's an informal relationship, the guys will. We have a uh, ask the institute button that they can they can they can email us and ask questions from anywhere in the world, and we go and we run classes for them. And so it's an informal relationship, but it's a person to person relationship uh, with many of these young captains and non commissioned officers across the special operations community, USAID, and even some Department of State. All right. You're doing much more. You're going to be coming out with a book, Game Changers. Mm -hmm. What's it about? Uh, a lot of what we've talked about. You know, one of the things that I felt really strongly about uh, at the at the end of my career was that uh, it was really started when my son sat down with me and told me he wanted to be a Green Beret, and he's he's not he's a few years older than when I decided to do it. So. Mm. I thought, you know, we're really we're kind of going down the wrong road here, and and I really I think that America's role in the world is not going to diminish. We have to step up. We have to continue to lead. We have to be uh, advocates for freedom, and we have to stand against tyranny. But the way that we do it, we have to change the game. Uh, and so, can I, I ask you I, something? Because everybody says we have to lead. Yeah. Why do we have to lead? What what what's the world getting out of it? What are we getting out of it? Yeah. Well, I, th I think that in today's world, mm. uh, I think that we have to, by lead, I mean, we have to deal with violent extremism head on. Uh, if we don't deal with it head on, no one else will. Uh, and most of these Islamist extremists are hell-bent on projecting terror against us at home. And so, you know, by lead, I mean, we've got to take uh, a lead effort on opposing violent extremism wherever it is. It's the way that we do it is, is very overt and I think, frankly, ineffective. And it makes us come across in a variety of ways that are pretty unpalatable. But, but, but there's other ways to lead from the front to, 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 to aggressively oppose violent extremism. And I think we have to. I think that if we don't, uh, we will have a Another catastrophic attack on our soil sooner rather than later. That's why I think we have to lead. It has nothing to do with a. I mean, there are some who would advance a moral imperative. I've spent a lot of my life in combat and I've lost a lot of friends, so mm -hmm. I'm not as adamant about that moral imperative as I am just protecting our homeland. I know what these folks are capable of, what they want to do, and how the expansion of their caliphate will ultimately result in more strikes against people here. And I believe to prevent that, we have to lead an effort that denies them strategic safe haven in these rough, undergoverned clan areas where they're setting up shop. And that's what the book's about. The book is about ways, new ways, to stabilize rough places uh, and the things that we've talked about here, bottom-up, uh, collaborating across the interagency instead of working against each other, Working with the realities in these places instead of you know what we want it to be, right. understanding what's there and working within it, uh, and and having a narrative. What is our story? Just telling people who we are, what we're about, and and then when we put that story out there, doing what we say we're going to do. And that's instead, what we don't do, though. I know. I know. That's and, the biggest and, and problem. It, it has a major impact. You call it the say-do gap. Uh, but you know, we say we're bringing democracy. We don't. 
Right, and in many cases they don't want democracy. Uh, they, th- th- that's a foreign concept to them, especially in honor-shame societies, and that's what, that's what I'm getting at. We've got to appreciate local reality. They don't want democracy. What they, in many ways what they look at is they want their, their form of clan society back, some kind of stability that they can relate to and that they'll get behind. And, and in the end of the day, that is better than a violent extremist caliphate. Um, and so that's what the book's about is how can we change the game to appreciate Appreciate local realities, work as a network, stabilize areas from the bottom up, and tell a story that's compelling and, and moves people to action. That's, that's how we change the game, and it's going to take a long time. It's going to be a persistent presence. It's a smaller footprint using operators and advisors and green berets, but it's a smaller footprint over a longer period of time. We've got to get patient. We've got to settle in. This is going to take a while. It's not going away, but this McDonald's mentality of I want it now, I want it immediately, and if not, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home, mm-hmm. we are causing more problems than we're solving. Who should be reading your book? When you're writing it, who do you want especially to read? I especially want the, the guys and gals who are out there working these stability problems around the world, whether you're a diplomat or a USAID person or a non-governmental or a soldier, and you know that there's a need for change, you see that what we're doing is not working, I want you to read the book because I think it'll give you something to galvanize around, to rally around, because you already see where we need to go here. And right now there's nothing out there that we can kind of gel around. And I also would hope that Americans who, who see that there's a need for change and who want to change things from the outside would also give it a read because I do believe that it's going to take the it's going to take the average American the civilian standing up and saying look enough uh, we we do need to con- confront these places what there are different ways to deal with these challenges we don't necessarily have to throw hundreds of thousands of soldiers in there what about uh, small groups of advisors how you know and, and, and talk to your congressmen your politicians about that because it doesn't have to be the way that we're doing it now it's, we're, 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 on a, we're on a kind of a, a dead-end street here, and we need to turn because we're going at a high rate of speed. Well, my suggestion, you give one free copy to each member of Congress. <laughs> I hope so. I'd be happy to. I, w- I would be happy to. And, uh, and I do hope that the policymakers uh, and leaders will take a look at it. Vip, I'll be honest with you, and maybe it's a little bit of just being a, a little jaded after my years in the military, mm. but in some ways I did not write it for them because I, I, I can't get them to even focus on Benghazi. Uh, and, and, and so getting them to focus on a bottom-up approach, I'm going to start with the people that already get it. Hopefully we can get ourselves together, and then we'll become a louder voice for change. I've always wanted to ask someone in your position, when you're out on the field, mm-hmm. the first time you shot someone, how did you get over the mental trauma? Well, I don't, I don't think that you ever get over it. I know mm. I don't. I, and, you know, Does it I, haunt uh, you? I don't know that I ever will get over that, uh, the, the, the taking of another human being's life. Uh, but even more so for me is the loss of guys who've been under my command or who my decisions have affected their lives. That haunts me even more. Mm-hmm. We all have our ways of trying to process it. It's not, it's not an easy thing. Uh, there are guys right now a lot uh, who are having a lot more challenges than I am, who have seen a lot more combat than I've seen. Uh, I am trying to work with them as, as they come home through the Green Beret Foundation. We're doing a project called Next Ridgeline to help 
Green Berets transition to civil society. Um, but it's different for everybody, you know, and, and, and over time you, you just you, you push it down and you keep going because if you think about for the last 10-plus years, our warriors, not just Green Berets, but right. special ops and, and military in general, uh, you're, you're in two frames of – there's two phases in your life. You're either in combat or you're getting ready to go, uh, and that's the life you lead. And look at our families and how just damaged they are. The military family has been so – just ridden so hard and and it's such bad shape uh, we've got but what can uh, people learn from you how do you keep your sanity how do you keep your ambition alive you've got a real estate portfolio you're giving back yeah i think it's for me you know my dad taught me at an early age mm. that, you know it's all about leaving tracks in this life you know he's a he's a country boy from appalachia and his father was a baptist minister and and he was just he's, he's still alive and he's He's just, he's always taught me that no matter what you do in this world, you focus on leaving tracks. You don't worry about yourself. You worry about giving back to something bigger than yourself, and you'll never want for anything. And he always calls that leaving tracks. And for me, I've tried to follow that. I'm not half the man he is, but I, I tell you, it has given me a sense of purpose. It has given me a sense of peace. It's allowed me to to just hold my boys and my wife and in and, and the still moments and just thank God that I'm able to, to do what I'm doing and, and still make a difference. And, and that's how I do it. And maybe that's the wrong way, but uh, I, I do believe that for all of us, if we can try to just find something bigger than ourselves and try to leave tracks, um, that we'll, we'll feel okay when, uh, when it's our time to, to make that stretch across the divide. Scott, very profound. Thank you so much for your views and all that you've done for this great country, and the best of success for the Stability Institute. Thanks a lot, Zip. I really appreciate it, and uh, uh, thanks to your listeners for uh, giving me the time to run my mouth, and I hope we can chat again sometime. Godspeed and God bless, sir. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Your comments and your follow are so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jaswal and my Facebook page. Just type in Vip Jaswal Report. A special shout-out of thanks to my wonderful team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Until then, I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your loved ones. And until next Sunday, have a productive and a happy week ahead.